Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Miss the show? No problem. On point and on the podcast. Long-term care is broken. We know that. But instead of throwing billions of dollars into it, when do we actually have an honest conversation about what really needs to happen, which is simply start from scratch? The goalposts keep moving for small businesses that are desperately trying to hold on. But again, the rules keep changing. So we'll get the perspective of a business owner who says he doesn't have 14 more days. And changes are coming to our country's hate speech laws in new legislation in the next couple of weeks. And some warn it is dangerously close to censorship. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. I'm listening. No region has been in lockdown longer than Mississauga, Brampton, Caledon, and the city of Toronto. We're uh, in 15 weeks of lockdown now. I don't know. I think it's unprecedented. I don't know what other regions in the country have been in lockdown almost four months. Lockdown longer than anywhere in the world, and now warnings of a third lockdown? uh, Yeah, hold on to your sanity with that one. And I hope this report's wrong. Uh, But I was reading in the uh, Toronto Star suggesting another mass lockdown might be coming our way. We're not even out of this one. So, like, if this is true, without question, it will be the straw that just kills the camel. It won't even break the back. It'll just kill the camel. It, It would just be, at this point, cruel. So I hope this report is wrong. Because I don't think people would follow it. These lockdowns, you know, they're about perspective. And I think really depending on where you are, we all have this different perspective. Because if you're outside the GTA, you know, you're wondering, what's all the whining about? Like, what, what's going on there? And you're, you know, because you're enjoying some freedom, you know, as we all should be by now. You know, if you're in, uh, let's say, Quebec, you're heading off to the movies, going to maybe a nice restaurant. Alberta, you can head off to the gym. In BC, my best friend, who's lived there for most of her life now, <clears throat> she, uh, she says life is totally normal. So we talk, and she literally can't comprehend what life is like here in Toronto because she's been shopping and eating out since May. So she doesn't think about the pandemic. We have totally different views of this pandemic. But if you're in the GTA, um, I think, you know, the days are nothing short of a grind because you're either one of these people has to work at home and staring at the four walls you have day after day after day after day after day, or you're working, let's say, the front lines of an essential service where, you know, it's a bit apocalyptic, or you're a business just about to collapse. So I think it's it's hard to have the same perspective in this pandemic because we're all just in different states of it. And it's hard to believe, but we have been in lockdown since November 23rd. Like, that was only supposed to be like, what? Only 28 days, guys. That's it. Oh, uh-huh. And then 28, 38, 48, 58. We're at 144 days. That is an incredibly long time. And every time, of course, we're told, oh, it's coming, then Lucy takes her football. 
In fact, I think Lucy doesn't just take the football. She's like pegging it at our head, spiking it at our head. So it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle for everyone in a different way. But as tough as it is, you know, I do at least have the perspective to know that this is not like what Anne Frank suffered as she hid from the Nazis. That I do know. And yet this writer from Vancouver, and I don't know if you heard about this, um, and I will remind you, this writer's had freedom since May. She actually wrote an article for the Globe and Mail titled Lessons in Living from Anne Frank, where she compares our lockdown restrictions, you know, in a free and democratic society to a family of Jews who had to hide in a tiny cupboard to, um, you know, avoid being killed by Nazis. I, I read this and I was like, what? What? No. Not on our worst day of these lockdowns. Have we ever been through anything close to that horror? I, I can safely say that Anne Frank did not have things like Uber Eats. She didn't have Netflix streaming, you know, like, uh, I don't even know how this became a thing. I mean, the Global Mail took it down immediately because there was such blowback and then they apologized. But how it got to print is beyond me because it's not a rational perspective. It is just insane. But here is a different perspective. And it comes from a business owner who's uh, on the brink of losing everything. And, you know, when we talk about businesses these days, I think a lot of us forget that, you know, they're, they're far more than just bricks and mortar. They are built by people who employ people to serve people. And they just can't hold on anymore, you know. So when people like Dr. Davila or you got Premier Ford or John Tory saying, you know, just a little longer, there is no longer for them. And Regan Irvine, who owns uh, Irv Gastropub here in Toronto, wrote a very personal plea that uh, caught my eye in which he, he basically pleads, begs these, these leaders to move into red, you know, get us into the red zone. Because like thousands of others of businesses, whether you're a gym, salon, restaurant, 14 days in gray is the end. And he's done his part. He has played by the rules. And his perspective is this, and, and he writes in part because it's a longer letter, but I, I do think this is important. He says, quote, I'm confused by restaurants being blamed for spreading COVID-19 when there's limited data and science to prove the theory. I have 1,300 contacts in COVID screening forms for the brief time my patio was allowed to open. The data has never been collected from myself or any other establishment I've spoken with. Over the last year, my mother and I have depleted our life savings to try and keep the restaurant afloat. We've cashed in RSPs, drained our savings accounts, maxed out credit cards, maxed out lines of credit because the government assistance programs aren't enough. As most high-level government officials from established, normally, and financially privileged families, I don't believe you truly understand the hardships, the mental health stress, the daily challenges we face. I always hear yourself, Dr. Davila, Dr. Williams, and Mayor Tory speaking about the impact of COVID-19. However, the growth rate of mental illness, things like suicide, divorce, domestic violence, drug and alcohol abuse are never at the forefront. Your half-assed lockdowns are causing people to lose everything while all of you still have collected full pay. Until any of you experience the financial setbacks and struggles that us, the small business owners, have suffered, you will truly never know the impact of your decisions. And he sent that letter to them because... You know, and I, he speaks for an awful lot of businesses. It's never just a little bit longer. And because we just really, truly aren't in this together. And, you know, because 144 days later, he, like so many others, just can't hold on. And so this is 
I think the perspective that is lost on the experts and, and certainly by those who are on the outside of these lockdowns looking in, um, you know, there are real people out there really suffering and looking for that light we keep getting promised, but not seeing it. And so we will talk to Reagan because I think he puts the face to the issue. In fact, we'll talk to a couple of business owners in different areas that are affected by this because I think we have to get beyond thinking of them as just bricks and mortars. You know, there are neighbors, there are friends, there are the people that we care about, and a lot of them are hurting, and even if they don't talk about it. They're really, really struggling. So we'll talk about that. Stay with us here on Point. Alex Pearson, this is Global News Radio. All right, great to have you here. Um, you know, it's necessary for sure because we need accountability, but we do not need a commission to tell us what went wrong in long-term care. It has been a train wreck waiting to happen for decades. Warehousing, frail people, does not and has never worked. And, of course, the pandemic's put a glaring light on its cruelties and endless failures. And uh, any day now, we're going to get a budget from the Trudeau government, and it'll promise billions that are going to be poured into health care but I think, you know, like we've got to start asking, is it time that we just stop throwing money at what is broken and doesn't seem to get fixed? An interesting research at Ryerson University's National Institute on Aging reveals that over the next 30 years, the number of Canadians over the age of 85 is going to triple. We're looking at 844,000 to 2.3 million baby boomers who will need care. And we don't have a system that can handle that tsunami. So... Isn't it time we have an honest conversation about using money to overhaul and finally fix what we all knew was broken? And what does that conversation look like? Let's ask. Francesca Grosso of Grosso McCarthy Communications joins me. And of course, you give a lot of strategic advice and public policy advice to those in government. One of the areas that you're very um, knowledgeable in is things like healthcare and certainly long-term care. So I'll ask you, how would you handle and rebuild healthcare? Right. Well, thank you very much uh, for having me on. This is a topic that's very dear to my heart. My mother actually um, is is in home care. And mm-hmm. uh, what would I do? We built a system back in the day where people were not living as long as they are living now. So we have a very hospital uh, OHIP-centric system. And all you have to do is take a look at how much money is being spent in health care, the majority of the healthcare dollars are really uh, going to hospitals and doctors. And in a nutshell, if we really want to start to prepare for the emergence of older people and people growing older for, you know, into their, their 80s, their 90s, etc., we have to turn the model on its head. We actually have to start funding and building better policy around the systems and the supports that they are going to need in the hospital and the doctor is not it. And that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. we don't need doctors in hospitals, but what it means is we have a system that's been created around people who are going to, you know, probably not live into their 70s, and the only time they really need medical care is when it's acute episodic. Now what we're seeing is the vast majority of people are going to need chronic help. They're going to need supports closer to home. They're going to need uh, supports that deal with dementia. So we really have to change the whole philosophy, and I'll, I'll just I'll end on this point by saying this. 
I get absolutely furious when I read people resuscitating the old public-private debate because, to Mm. me, it takes the focus away from the much bigger problem that we have, which is we have to completely rethink the way our healthcare system operates and where we're putting our priorities. Yeah, I mean, some of the numbers are shocking. We've got 40,000 Canadians right now on waiting lists, and we've got over 430,000 Canadians who can't get adequate home care. And then I looked at the cost breakdown, because I would personally like to stay at home as an elderly person, and I think most would, but people think that's expensive. But when you look at the cost, acute care hospital bed costs are $730 a day. A long-term care bed costs $182 a day. Home care costs $103 a day. Home care is a whole lot less expensive than shoving people into warehoused hospital settings. Yeah, and if you take a look at some other bigger numbers, first of all, the $700 per day for hospitals is being very generous. Uh, I think that was low, yeah. It's it's much higher than that, uh, depending, because remember, it's not the bed that they're selling, it's it's the supports that come with it. I think if you take a look at the at the budget and consider this, we spend, say, about $64 billion on health care mm-hmm. in Ontario, and of that, less than $2 billion goes into supports for home care. That's just, that's just an example of what I'm talking about here. It's about having a long-term care uh, system that was never meant to take people who are, you know, who are suffering from cognitive impairment, uh, dementia, that um, are prone to uh, anger and, and sometimes violent uh, spurts. It's about not having a staffing model that supports those people. It's about trying to, you know, do things on, on, the, on the cheap and contract out so you're not paying into support such as pensions, etc., and not having yeah. full-time staff. The ratios are off. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And you're right. This is not something that's recent. This is something that, look, when I was in government back in 2003, there were fights going on about whether we were going to pay 5 or $6 a day of food. I mean, this, this, is, this is the level we're at, and yet we throw money at hospitals. We throw yeah. money at hospitals. Every announcement that I hear is more about hospitals. And, and what's, what is shocking to me is that the hospitals complain that they're over capacity. They can't deal with everything, and therefore they need more money and they need to take more services on. We need to rethink healthcare. We need to decant services from hospitals that should not be put in hospitals. We need to reapportion dollars away from hospitals and put it into long-term care, home care. And it will mean that hospitals shouldn't be doing as much as they're doing now. And that's a good thing. Right. But it, but it's a conversation and it's an issue that takes actual leadership and politicians are terrified of touching this because, oh, you know, it brings up the public versus private care. Um, and part of the challenge is it's done provincially. So there's different regulations all across the board. The conversation has come up, as you well know, of whether or not there should be federal guidelines. Where do you go on that issue? Because I don't know if you can take it away from the provinces. And so how do you get a system that is comprehensive and kind of works for everybody, given the divisions. Yeah, I would say that it's just not on for the federal government. That's dreaming in technicolor. I mean, they do not have 
the, the, the political will or courage. They need to work with the provinces on so many other things. They are not going to come in and start bullying the provinces and telling them how they spend their money. They tried to do it last time, and I don't think it worked very well. They said you have to spend it on mental health and on um, home care, and they ring-fenced money for that purpose. And I think it's fair to say that the provinces have not made good on spending uh, the proportionate dollars that they had signed on to, and everybody just sort of closes their eyes and passes the envelope and doesn't say anything. It's going to take one thing, courage, tremendous courage. It's going to take a government that is able to stand up to the constant um, requests by the hospitals, for more money, and it's going to take uh, an ability to say, no, we're going to be putting this in services outside of hospitals. I don't even care, public, private, it doesn't matter. It's got to be outside of the hospital uh, walls. And the big problem that we are going to have is that people, they associate more with hospitals because that's the way our traditional system has been. If you have a doctor and you have a hospital, you're set. So, that's why it takes so much political courage because the people see the big win is, oh, our hospital's getting all this money, but they're never going to see any real results from all that money. And, yeah. and it's know, not it's not until you're in it and, and you have a loved one that you're in crisis because it's so hard to navigate and you start at the hospital, but the hospitals can't get rid of them, you know, older people uh, any faster than they can. They don't want them. It's very clear. And then finding private versus public care is very, very difficult. It is such an overwhelming system that you almost need like a concierge service to get people yeah, into the proper care. But again, there's yeah. so much if you, if you had a government that had a lot of appetite to do things, and I would suggest this is likely for the beginning of a mandate, not at the end of a mm-hmm. mandate, you could really, you know, break some eggs and you could really make some 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 good changes. Uh, definitely, you need to completely rethink the way we deliver home care. And I think the big blocker there is that you have an institutionalized civil service that has only yeah. always thought about delivering it in one way. Uh, there are so many models out there. You know, I just, I really think it's time for Ontario to really start to, to look at other countries that are doing it better than we are instead of all of this baloney that is, you know, made in Ontario and dreamed up in some civil servant quarters where, you know, people who have never delivered care in their lives are are, are coming up with policy because it essentially helps them move the envelope without moving the needle too much. And it's about status quo-itis. And I really think that we need to have some bold courageous decision-making in government, and it's my hope that uh, they will finally get to this, because <laughs> we've been well, waiting. May- yeah, we've been waiting. Well, maybe someone should run on the fact that we're all heading there, even those in the civil yep. service, so it better get fixed now, because it's only going right. to get worse. Yeah, Francesca, I appreciate your time on this and uh, your insight always. Great to talk to you again. Take care. Thank you. That's Francesca Bye. Grosso with uh, Grosso McCarthy Communications. And I do. I hope it's a, it should not, should not even be an issue. We know what's wrong. It's broken. This pandemic has shamed us to finally have to confront it. Someone has got to get bold and take the leadership to fix it. These lockdowns do have a cost, you know, and I want to tell you about the human side to what we call businesses, you know, the Things that apparently are just bricks and mortars. And there was this passionate plea that I talked about in the opening of the show. And um, it's from a pub owner who owns, you know, a, a pub in downtown Toronto or in, in, in Toronto. 
He's been shut down like the rest of the restaurants for 144 days. And I think he speaks for a lot of businesses uh, that are right now on their knees and just losing hope. Because even when we open to gray, it does nothing, almost nothing for restaurants, which still can't bring customers in. But the owner of this pub, called The Irv, uh, wrote this very, very personal, passionate letter to Dr. Davila, Dr. Williams, Mayor Tory, you know, begging them, basically, at least let us open to Red. And he politely lays out his case, you know, that his struggle, his commitment to safety, the investment into safety, and, and the price they are paying. And quite frankly, he does not have another 14 days. And so the question becomes, like, when do those lives matter? We care about COVID, okay, but what about the rest of the people? Do we care about them? Regan Irvin, Irvine, sorry, owner of Irv Gastropub, joins me now. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You know, the letter was hard not to um, to really, it was a very powerful letter um, because, you know, like so many uh, businesses, you invested thousands and thousands of dollars yeah. into PPE. You went through all the safety and training. You filled out hundreds of, of forms to make sure people were traced and tracked. And even yeah. though you're playing by the rules, you can't open. Yeah, I think like the important thing for me with the letter was uh, the reason that I made it public is because I made um, numerous attempts privately um, with emails and handwritten letters to um, Mayor Tory, Premier Ford, and Dr. Davila. And I, and I literally got that auto response, my office will get back to you. And I never heard back. And these this has been going on for months and months and months. And then when I watched Dr. Davila yesterday, thoughts, questions about data going from, you know, moving us into red, uh, it was just very, very frustrating. And I was at home and I said to my partner, I said, to her, like, well, what do we like, you know, and she said, why don't you write an open letter? So we sat down and we kind of like penned this all together, but I wanted to make it clear to people, this isn't about me being um, an anti-masker or not thinking COVID is a dangerous thing because I'm not, Saying that, I just want the opportunity um, to make a living. My staff make a living, and I mean, who is the government to um, decide who is an essential worker? Whether you're a lawyer, you're a bartender, you're a waiter, you're a cook, or you work at the local hardware store. I mean, everybody's essential in their own household to provide for their family, and I just felt that like enough is enough. And I think the biggest thing for me that um, after doing research and, you know, Mayor Tory comes from, you know, a wealthy family and law firm, um, the Fords are well known for everybody. Dr. Davila, it's not cheap to go to medical school. So these people are coming from like a family of privilege and a family that has made money and everything. They haven't done themselves because they're the product of it. They haven't taken a risk with their own money. They're very good at telling us what we should do or they're very good at like spending the government's money or not spending the government's money. But what risk have they personally taken and invested out of their own pocket into trying to make a living for themselves? They haven't. You talk about, you know, you've pretty much drained your, your own resources. Your mother mm -hmm. has um, drained yeah. her resources. I mean, yeah. you do not have to answer this question, but what are we talking about right now? I mean, I've talked to other, I've talked to salon owners, one who has lost a quarter of a million just trying to keep the doors open. Yeah. Are, you talking, you know, business. are you talking, sorry, are you talking just over yeah. the course of COVID or are you just, just talking just, in the course of since things have slowed down because COVID is coming? Well, just in, in trying to keep this restaurant, this pub afloat, oh. like what are you, what are you so, taking in your personal pocket? Yeah, so let's do this. First, 
revenues, um, um, just at the herb alone, I'm um, very fortunate to have um, two amazing partners at our other spot, Super Bargain, which is a little cocktail bar, um, which we can get into in a few minutes. But revenues at the herb, um, let's just say for the first two months of this year already are down close to $141,000 from the previous two months of last year. Uh, revenues to date in the 340-something days we've been closed are hovering around the $1.5, $1.6 million revenue loss. And we're talking between seventy dollars to $85,000 out of pocket um, to keep this open and going. And you talk um, quite Honestly, you know, that 14 more days in gray, it's it's not survivable. I mean, is it that dire for you at this point? Well, so here's the thing. Like, um, at both spots, we have, um, like, fair landlords. And, like, so we're not worried about being in the eviction process. It's just about the point of the money buying, like, you know, supplies to fill a menu or paying staff or you know, a hydro bill or whatever, like that eventually runs out. And yeah, we are getting pretty thin, you know what I mean? And that is the frustrating part because uh, our pub is such a wonderful place, a big part of the community and just seeing the outpour of, um, you know, whether it's been Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the messages um, from people along with yourself is like, it's crazy to think that um, somebody else other than, myself is going to have the um, the decision to have this restaurant closed or not and to have those Dr. Davila is essentially making these decisions for other people. You know, you look to the United States, Texas is wide open now. Florida mm-hmm. really never shut down. But then you even look in this own country. BC has been open for months with restaurants and gyms open. Um, shopping never shut down. Alberta has opened up. Quebec has opened up. Ottawa has opened up. I mean, we're seeing all these regions around the GTA and Toronto open up. That's got to frustrate you. Oh, well, I think what frustrates me, so what kind of set me off was, um, you know, you look at the Collingwood area, okay? You go out there and you know what? We know some people, um, the guys from Gibson and Company and Tremont Cafe out there who are amazing people who spent Mm -hmm. thousands of dollars to do everything properly, okay? And then they're two weeks later told they have to shut down but they and they go to gray zone. But they witness Blue Mountain, which is a half a kilometer away, because they're in Gray Bruce County, they're in green zone. So Blue Mountain can have 50 people in their restaurant and these guys can't have anything. It's, it's absolutely, science doesn't prove that. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, I don't claim to be, but I'm not a fool either. And then you look at Toronto and you look at, okay, you can go out for dinner on the north side of Fields Avenue, but not on the south side. Like, how does science, how does any of this make sense? I mean, well, they, it, should have lo- they, sorry, they should have locked down everything at once. These regional lockdowns, and they say, like, people are driving to other areas or other regions. Well, can you blame them? They've been locked down for a year with nothing to do. Yeah. And and we are going into this third wave and talk again of maybe another lockdown. So, you know, even if you can open, um, nothing's stable because it seems that those in charge haven't really figured out a way to live with this virus. No. And I mean, I think the hard part is, is like I was I understood the first lockdown. I actually applauded them during the first lockdown, even though I lost revenue. And it's very kind of shocking. They rolled out like serve and everything pretty quickly, and you know what? But nobody knew what to expect, right? So, like, I totally understood there was not really a plan because it kind of just hit us out of nowhere. 
But then during the first lockdown, they said there's a second wave coming, there's a second wave coming, there's a second wave coming. Well, the second wave came. And their plan, they weren't any further along than they were from day one. They just kind of recycled the same plan and the same plan and the same plan that didn't work. And so, look, you're on the radio. This is covering all of southwestern Ontario. Um, what would you say to Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Ford, Mr. Tory, Dr. DeVille, Dr. Williams? What do you want them to understand? I want them to understand, and this is the part that really, I really, truly struggle with. We did everything in our power, and I would say above the standards of what they wanted for um, COVID protocol. And what I don't understand, and the only thing I want an explanation for, and I'm sure most of us small business owners, whether it be restaurants or nail salons, whatever, want an explanation for is, how can I not have 10 people in my restaurant right now, or even 20 people on my patio right now as we're getting to 10 degrees out and we can put some heaters out there, but yet you're going to let 100 people stand in line at Costco outside, or you're going to have somebody not monitor the aisles at Costco. I had to go get takeout containers from my restaurant the other day at Costco, and I literally had somebody reaching over my shoulder to grab something, and Costco does nothing. You come into the Herb, you come into Super Bargain, you go into any other restaurant, local business, there's COVID tracing, we're taking your temperature. And, but the other problem is they don't do anything with this COVID tracing. I have 1,300 COVID tracing. Well, where's the data? The data is in the binder behind my bar and every other bar in Toronto. It's like, I just want them to understand the pain that they're Like, I understand, again, COVID is real. COVID is, but we're a year into this. And eventually you're going to get to a point where these neighborhoods in the city, such as Cabbage Town, Leslieville, the beaches, mm-hmm. are built on small business. What's going to happen is people are going to plummet. Property prices, housing prices are going to plummet because there's, not, there's, no, there's nothing in the neighborhood, right? And for me, my whole thing is if you're not, like, if you're not personally, like if your household is not personally financially impacted with COVID, then you, you really are maybe for the lockdown or don't understand why us small business owners are speaking out. And I think people need to put themselves in our shoes. Well, I mean, it just, uh, it, it may just be a business, but it is a very personal thing if you happen to be the owner of that business. Correct. And that's like, you know, staff can, as much as I love our staff, they, um, you know, if we close tomorrow, they're all great people. I'm sure they could find jobs at other great establishments and do other things because they're all amazing people. But it's us small business owners that are left picking up the pieces and like our families are the ones that are affected. And, you know, this isn't just about me. This is about the staff at both restaurants. $2,000 from the government isn't enough, especially in the city of Toronto, to live on. When 16-year-old kids living at home with their parents that made $5,000 working a part-time job last year get the same as like a single mother or somebody living in Toronto, it's just not fair. Well, I certainly hope the next time we talk, there's a different story to tell, but we'll keep in touch. And uh, I thank you I very much it. for sharing your time. Well, thank, you. And thank you for reaching out. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. You as well. Thank you. That is Reagan Irvine, over, uh, owner of the uh, Irv Gastro Pub. And I, I don't think you can hear it more clearly than that. You know, so for those people who email me and say they'll build another business, like they weren't very good if they didn't survive. No, <laughs> that's not how it works. They didn't fail or they're not failing because they're bad at business. They've been ordered shut down and they don't have a choice, period. And sadly, his employees, there may, no be, they, there may not be another restaurant down the street for them to get a job because they're all collapsing. You drive around the cities. It's all over the place. That is the reality.
Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. Any day now, we are expecting the Trudeau government to table legislation with new regulations for social media platforms. But in this bill, it's important because there are going to be changes to our hate speech laws. And the new definition, which is aimed, of course, at tackling online hate, will be based possibly on previous court decisions and how the Supreme Court has defined hate. But the government's also hinting at reintroducing a controversial hate speech law that was widely criticized as an attack on free speech back in 2013. And that's because back then the proposed legislation would have created a new regulatory body and another board, some more bureaucracy, that will have the power to use their own discretion on what they deem hateful. So it flirted way too close on censorship because, of course, hate is subjective. It can be you know viewed very differently depending on one's politics and views. So your hate is not the same as mine. Christine Van Gyne, litigation director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. We have you on an awful lot these days because there's a lot of constitutional issues all <laughs> over the place. And this one is one, but you've been working on this one. Yeah, so the government has not proposed the legislation yet. So this is all kind of speculation. But what we've heard is that they're going to propose a statutory definition of hate, which, you know, right now there's no statutory definition of what hate uh, means. And, you know, I'm concerned about about defining hate in in this way just because it's a very subjective term. um, And I think we want to give courts flexibility the definition obviously evolves and, and changes, but I think setting it down in in law will be inherently giving discretion to these um, these tribunals that they're also proposing to censor all kinds of speech. So back in 2013, we used to have um, a civil remedy for hate speech, um, which meant you could, if you felt that something had happened that that was hateful, you could apply to the Canada Human Rights Commission, who would investigate um, and then refer it to a tribunal. The person who had been hateful um, bore the burden of defending themselves and the complainant bore no cost. Um, there were concerns back then that the this bureaucratic institution was applying the standard of hate in a subjective way and that it was applying it in in a politicized way, that some things um, that it was basically using, you know, the standards of of political correctness, um, but with the force of of law and penalties under this bureaucratic process. So uh, it was repealed for that reason. And we're really concerned about the government's concept that they may be bringing it back. And and as I understand, in the framework, it would have these five categories. So there would be hate speech, terror content, um, uh, content that incites violence, things like uh, child sexual exploitive exploitive content and non-consensual sharing of intimate content. I don't under I don't even know how they would police that for one thing. But aren't these things already in the criminal code? Yes. So um, advocating for genocide is already criminal. Um, uh, sharing non-consensual sexual images or intimate images is also in the criminal code. So is um, incitement of incitement of hatred, which would be inciting um, hate, but also to the level that it would it would disrupt the public peace. And distributing um, hate content is also on under the criminal code already an offense. The concern becomes 
why why you need this this additional requirement under the human rights code um, it was it was previously repealed because the the government of the day viewed the criminal penalties as sufficient to deal with these issues and that the existence of this bureaucratic regulator was too was too much of an infringement into people's freedom of expression. When when hate speech rises to um, a really extreme level, that kind of content is already dealt with under the criminal code. It was seen as unnecessary to deal with it under the civil penalty run through a, a regulator. But, you know, 2013 is a lot different than 2021 because social media is so much more predominant now. And I think there's such a polarization uh, between political uh, differences. And so, you know, you can just disagree with someone these days and, and you're called all you know, racist or homophobic or any kind of name. But it's that's just sort of identity why politics. We don't want this, yeah. Right. That's why. Right. We but don't the, but want but. This. But it could be, you know, that my concern would be that a lot more people will welcome this thinking that this is the answer without realizing it's actually quite a bit more dangerous. But that's the whole that's the whole problem, Alex, is that you don't want someone who disagrees with you to be able to call you a racist and report you to a bureaucrat who can then Mm -hmm. force you to defend yourself um, in an administrative tribunal like that's why this whole thing was repealed in 2013, because it amounted to an unjustified form of censorship. So, I mean, we already have a criminal law that deals with extreme statements that can lead to violence and things like that. We, we I don't like hatred. I don't like racism. I don't like sexism or any of these these types of, of speech that are repugnant. But we have we, we don't deal with it in these ways. Like we don't need to deal with it through another yet another regulator, yet another tribunal. Um, it, it didn't work well in 2013 when we used to have it. It was repealed for a reason and it should not be brought back. No, it shouldn't. My concern is, though, you know, politics today is all about, you know, pinning a label on your adversary, you know, shutting down speech or opinion that you don't like. And so I think a lot of people on the surface would say we need this and, and excuse that and and, um, and and without the understanding. And certainly, you know, I don't know what's in this bill, but I have not a lot of confidence in Mr. Gibault, given some of the comments he has made in the past, um, <laughs> that they're going to get this right. Yeah, I mean, I think that your point is exactly bang on. It's that people are are labeling anyone who disagrees with them, um, you know, any kind of ism like you're this is racism, this is sexism. And, and, you know, I think I think that that shows, you know, why we shouldn't have this regulator, why we shouldn't have this, because it's so easy to just throw those terms around. And unless they rise to a really extreme level, the government has no business in, in getting involved in private speech. And I don't like that type of speech, but it's not, it's not for government to, you know, through law, make people like each other, unless it's going to, unless it rises to a criminal level, it, it it's not the government's business. No, it's not. But we'll wait and see because this is coming, I guess, in the next couple of weeks. The warning flags are out there and we'll see what they uh, drop. Christine, I know you're very busy these days. I appreciate your time. Okay, thanks for having me on. Christine Van Guyen with the the, uh, Canadian Constitution Foundation uh, joining us here. And they're very busy these days dealing with all the constitutional issues of this pandemic. And so keep your eye on that because it might not seem like a very big deal. But I assure you, in this climate, it is vital that this is uh, done right or not done at all. 
You can join us Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. Here, I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.